All right, I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Mike, if we could get the house lights up a little bit for those who are going to want to read and take notes, that might be a little bit better on your eyes. The reason I ask for that is this morning we're going to cover a lot of text. So if you didn't bring a Bible, I would encourage you to grab one in the pew in front of you and just stick a note card or your bulletin in it and close it just for a moment as we get there. But I think it'll be helpful and to your advantage um, if uh, you want to follow along that way. Before we get into our time together, let's pray. Uh, Father, it's good to be in your word this morning, and I ask that, Holy Spirit, you would uh, enlighten our hearts and minds, that we may be encouraged today, that we may be strengthened through the ministry of the word and the Holy Spirit to live according to your good will and purpose for our lives that, God, we would uh, take serious the goodness of the gospel, that we would stand firm in it, and that, God, we would preserve it, that we would protect the unity of the church as we strive to be a witness in this world uh, of the gospel unhindered. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there's two things that most people don't like. Meetings. You like meetings? and conflict. And today we're going to look at both of those. A meeting, a church meeting. (laughs) This is funny. I know that a lot of you don't like church meetings. You know how I know that? Based on your attendance. (laughs) So I know you don't like church meetings. But we're going to look at a church meeting today, uh, the the Jerusalem Council. And we're going to look at an issue of conflict that needed to be resolved. And if you think about conflict and maybe even conflict in your own life, oftentimes people either run into conflict or they turn and they run as fast and as hard away from conflict as they can. So which one are you? Do you run into conflict or do you run away from conflict? I suppose there might be a third category, and this is the category I would suggest you don't be the person who is always stirring up conflict, okay? If that's you, stop it. And whoever you're doing that to, you can thank me later because that's no fun, is it? But conflict is a real thing, and sometimes we can't avoid it. Conflict isn't always a bad thing, and conflict is the thing that we shouldn't always run away from. Because conflict can actually be a good thing. Conflict, when we handle it appropriately, should lead to a place of resolving our differences. And that's one of the benefits of conflict, is bringing resolution to life. Now, what is resolving a conflict? What does that really mean? Well, to resolve a conflict is to come to a place of agreement for how we will move forward together. A lot of times we think we've resolved conflicts when actually all we've done is compromised. Compromise is giving something up so that we can agree to have a difference. To resolve a conflict is to agree what we're going to gain together so we can move forward together. While compromise keeps our eyes on what we've lost, resolve places our eyes on what we're gaining together. And so today, 
We're entering into a, a, a church council meeting. I want you to consider yourselves looking through the window at one of the first major meetings of church council with a big issue before us. The issue is, is the gospel truly about grace? Or must we add something to grace in order to be saved? This is the issue that the early church found themselves facing. A dispute arose in the church in Antioch of Syria. While Barnabas and Paul had come back from their first missionary journey, they were sharing with joy all the work that God was doing through the proclamation of the gospel in how people, Gentiles, were getting saved. There was a group of Judaizers from Jerusalem who came down to Antioch in Syria and began preaching and teaching the Christians there that you must be circumcised and obey the Old Testament law in order to truly be saved. Paul and Barnabas were like, ah, ah, nope, that is not true. So to deal with the dispute, they decided to send a bunch of people to Jerusalem to sit down with the leaders, the elders, and the apostles to figure out what the gospel is really all about. How do we agree to move forward together? It wasn't a trivial dispute. It was something that had to be dealt with. The church leaders in Jerusalem, they couldn't afford to ignore it because the implication of getting the gospel right reached far beyond Antioch of Syria. In fact, the implication of getting the gospel right has a direct impact on our lives today. So they met in Jerusalem to resolve the issue. They worked swiftly, they worked quickly, they worked together to come up with a plan that stayed in alignment with the truth of God's word and was a message of the true gospel. How they resolved this is an example for us today. It's an example for how we are to live as a church, but it's also an example of how we are to deal with conflict in our family life, in our business relationships, in our friendships. When such disputes arise, we must resolve to settle our differences. You know, too often churches are ripped apart by silly disputes. While there are things that we should fight for, there's oftentimes the things that rip and tear churches apart that are things we shouldn't be fighting over. Things like the color of the carpet or the pew that you're sitting on. There are disagreements of personalities, maybe on staff or the personality of the pastor doesn't match the personality of the congregation. Sometimes there's a loss of trust with church leadership or there's financial woes or hardships or problems and as a result create tension. Sometimes churches have differing opinions on the direction that they should go and as a result one group goes that way while the other group goes this way. But when these disputes arise, church leaders and lay people, all of us, the church, the people of God who are part of the family of God, 
We must work together to find, hear this, God's solution to our path together forward. That's the goal. If the issue isn't addressed, you know what it becomes, that festering wound, that thing that nags us, that divides us, that splinters us. And if conflict in the church goes unresolved, it hinders the message of the gospel. And God wants the message of the gospel to be preserved so that it can go into the world unhindered. I'm going to take a little bit different approach this morning to how we go through the text. Uh, We're going to cover like 30 verses. So rather than reading it all at once and then going back to it, we're going to read it together, and I'm just going to make some general observations as points of teaching. And at the end, I'm going to draw two life lessons by way of application that will be encouraging for us as the church. That's why I think you need your Bible open and in hand. Acts chapter 15 uh, will be a much easier way for you to just follow along as we go through this. It certainly will be on the screen, so you can do that. And if your best way of listening and digesting is to close your eyes and put your head back, I won't think you're sleeping, but I will call you out. No, I'm just kidding. I won't do that. All right. Acts 15 verse 1. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, unless you're circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, just to point out, this is the issue. The issue that needs to be resolved is this very issue right here. Verse 2, Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Now, there are some issues in life that are worth arguing over, and then there are some issues in life that are worth vehemently arguing for. And this is one of those issues. It's essential. It's critical. It's of utmost importance. And so Paul and Barnabas, they dig their teeth in, they claw down, they, they, they just they settle in, and they're going to go at it. And I want you to consider the fights in your life, the arguments that you have, How many of those really matter? Let's not waste our time on arguing about things that aren't that important so that we can take the time to settle into the things that matter most. We go on. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about the question. The church sent the delegates to Jerusalem, and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and also in Samaria to visit the believers. They told them to much everyone's joy that the Gentiles, too, were being converted. So as they're making their way to Jerusalem, they're just simply talking about the impact of the first missionary journey and how as we entered into these communities and we we brought the good news to the synagogue and then we brought the good news to the community center and we, we began to tell people about Jesus and the salvation that can be found in him, people's lives were being changed. And the church is celebrating this with great joy. Verse four, when they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and the elders. They reported everything God had done through them. 
But then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted, the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. This was the issue in Antioch. It now becomes the issue of the day in Jerusalem. Now, should we be surprised that the sect of the Pharisees who were believers were the ones who were making this case? Absolutely not. These Pharisees were the, 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 the most religious, the, the, the ones who followed the, the, the law to a T. Now think about their life for a moment. All throughout their life, they were taught if somebody who is outside the Jewish faith was to become part of God's family, they must become part of God's family by being circumcised, obeying the law, and becoming a Jew. So for them to be a Christian quite naturally meant, well, you become a Christian by becoming a Jew first. And this was the issue that Paul and Barnabas were fighting against, to say God's program has changed. In fact, it really hasn't changed. You can go through the Old Testament, and what you'll discover is that it was never required for a Gentile to become a Jew to be brought into the family of God. For salvation has always been by grace, through faith, in Jesus. Now, it's true that if you wanted to be a Jew, you needed to be circumcised and you needed to obey the law in order to be part of the Jewish family. That is true. But in order to find salvation, it's always been by grace, through faith. Verse 6, so the apostles and elders met together to resolve the issue. At the meeting, after a long discussion, do you see what we're doing? We're, we're, we're peering into the window. This is now all the elders and apostles and teachers and people of the church who have gathered together to hear the issue. And what does it tell us? They worked to resolve the issue. And as they worked to resolve the issue at this meeting, they took time to discuss it. Verse 7, Peter stood and he addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. Let's pause for a moment and go a few chapters back. Remember Peter's vision by God? God put animals in this cloth and he lowered it down and Peter has this vision and, and God declared that these animals were clean and that Peter didn't get to determine what was clean or unclean. God does. And in doing so, he revealed to Peter that Gentiles are clean in the eyes of God and are open to becoming part of the family of God. And then Peter goes and preaches to Cornelius and his family, and the first Gentiles hear the gospel and get saved. Peter is bringing us back to this revelation and to this experience as he's building a case. He goes on in verse 10. 
So why are we now changing God, challenging God, by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? The law was a yoke that they couldn't bear. The law was something that pointed the way to salvation. It wasn't salvation. And as people try to earn their salvation through obeying the law, they recognize their sin and their need for a Savior. And now what Peter is saying is, why are we challenging God by putting a yoke on people that does not save them by grace, but gives them a burden that we ourselves couldn't even bear? Go on. Verse 11, we believe that we're all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. It's always been by grace that we are saved. Verse 12, everyone listened quickly or or listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. What was their witness and what was their testimony? It was all about the miracles, the signs, and the wonders that validated the message of the gospel, that proved it to be true, and as a result, they were sharing the impact that it was having on people's lives as as the gospel was bringing life to dead people. Verse 13, when they had finished, James. Now, who's this James? This is Jesus's half-brother. James grew up with Jesus. He wasn't a believer But after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, it's believed that Jesus appeared to James, and James became a believer. And as a result, he was known as a very faithful man, one whose knees were calloused because he was a man of prayer. James was known as the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Yes, Peter, known as the leader of the church universal. Paul and Barnabas were the pastor leaders of the church in Antioch and Syria, but now you have James, Jesus' brother, the practical pastor leader at the church in Jerusalem. This is that James. He stood and he said, brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time that God first visited the Gentiles to take from them the people for himself. This conversion of the Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted as it is written. Afterward, I will return and restore the fallen house of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles. All those I have called to be mine, the Lord has spoken, he who made these things known so long ago. Essentially, what James is saying is, let's not be the hindrance to God's plan for the Gentiles. Let's welcome them in just as God intended. And so my judgment is this, he says, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Verse 20, instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. In this meeting, Peter has spoke. Paul and Barnabas have spoke. 
Now James speaks, and when he speaks, you might think, wow, why did he place all of these requirements on the Gentiles when the only issue at the table was circumcision? Now we have all these other issues. No, we need to change that perspective. What James is actually saying is, let me first address the Gentiles by saying, let's let them into God's family the way God intended by grace. So he first spoke about the Gentile. Now he's going to speak about the Jew. And if the Gentile and Jew are going to belong to the same family, then it would be good for the Gentile to be aware of the Jew's position and of their needs so that they can serve the Jewish community and learn to live together, Jew and Gentile, as one family of God. So you would do best to serve your brother or sister in Christ by paying attention to these things. The things that he says is these very things. Keep yourselves from uh, idols, from sexual immorality, from eating foods that are strangled and animals uh, that have blood still on them. We fast forward in the meeting to the conclusion. The conclusion brings about a letter that gets sent back to the church in Antioch as they resolve the issue, and here it is. Verse 22, then the apostles and elders together with the whole church in Jerusalem chose delegates and they sent them to Antioch of Syria with Paul and Barnabas to report the decision. The men chosen were two of the church leaders, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas. And this is what the letter said that they took with. This is the letter from the apostles and elders, your brothers in Jerusalem. It's written to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. We understand that some men from here have troubled you and upset you with their teaching, but we did not send them. So we decided to, having come to complete agreement, the issue is now resolved, to send you official representatives along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are sending Judas and Silas to confirm what we have decided concerning your question. Remember the question? Do you need to be circumcised in order to be saved? For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood, from meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. Farewell. There's nothing you need to do to add to grace, for it's by grace you're saved. But as a family of God, we want you to live together, being mindful of the other. And if you're willing to do these things, you will do well together. Farewell. That's essentially what they say. Verse 30, the messengers went at once to Antioch, where they called a general meeting of the believers and delivered the letter. And there was great joy throughout the church that day as they read the encouraging message. All right. Now, what life lessons can we actually take from this church meeting and apply to our own lives? The first I want to point out is simply this. We must never compromise the gospel of grace. We must never compromise the gospel of grace. The gospel is the good news about what Jesus has done for you and for me and how he has brought salvation to the world. 
not through our efforts or anything that we can do, but simply by trusting in what he has done for us. The gospel of grace affirms that salvation is by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Nothing more, nothing less. When it comes to church disputes or disputes on doctrinal matters, there are those that we call essential to the Christian faith and non-essential to the Christian faith. The issue at hand of salvation was, is what we would call an essential of the Christian faith. It's critical to get it right for salvation. There are those non-essential matters in the church that we would say don't determine one's salvation and can also be clearly understood through the Word of God. And as it relates to non-essential matters, we are to live charitably with one another. But here at Alexandria Covenant Church, we have a saying, and it's this, we're going to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing about the gospel isn't what we do. The main thing about the gospel is the person of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. So we are going to keep the main thing the main thing. We're going to keep Jesus the main thing, and we're going to keep preaching Jesus. Examples of how we must stand firm and fight is this very issue itself. As it relates to salvation, we must stand firm in the gospel and not add anything to the gospel of grace. There's another thing that you're hearing me stand firm on lately, and that's the authority of God's word. We should not budge. We dare not allow the culture to determine the way of the church or God's standard for holiness. The authority of God's word is where we will find God's standard of holiness, where we will find his instruction for life as a church and our lives as Christians. And I want you to know that as your pastor, I will fight tooth and nail to make sure the authority of God's word is upheld. That we don't dismiss it for the teachings of culture that is ruining too many churches and too many people's lives and their witness for the gospel. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says this, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the things that we have done so that none of us can boast about it. So what about those non-essential issues in the Christian faith? Can we still argue and fight about them? Sure we can, but we should do so with charity and respect. So let's name one, baptism. You know, some of you uh, were baptized as infants, and some of you were even told that your baptism is essential to your salvation, to which I would say, no, it is not. The scripture doesn't teach that. Others were baptized as a believer and an adult, upon which you understand that your baptism has nothing to do with your salvation. Now here at Alexandria Covenant, we do infant baptisms, we do believer baptisms, and we do infant dedications. 
well, we got our bases covered. But as it relates to baptism, let me say this. Baptism will never save you. For if baptism is essential to salvation, then it's no longer by grace are you saved. It would be grace plus something. And anytime we add something to grace, anytime we add Jesus plus something, we've lost the gospel of grace. And therefore, we must understand that there's a difference between essential matters of the faith and non-essential. On the non-essential, we can differ. On the non-essential, we also understand that one can make a biblical argument for. I can argue biblically for believer baptism. I think much easier than I can argue for infant baptism. But there are texts within Scripture that seem to give me the opportunity to make an argument for infant baptism. And therefore, I can argue both. And I'm happy to argue with you. But if we want to make baptism a matter of salvation, all day long, we'll say, no, it isn't. It's a matter of obedience. One of the things that we must recognize is many of the other ways that we add to salvation or add to the gospel of grace in the church. I always find it a little bit comical, sad actually, when I ask somebody if they're a Christian and their initial response is, yes, I go to church. I don't know about you, but that's pretty revealing about what they think a Christian is. I want you to know that if you're hanging your salvation on your church attendance, (laughs) oh man, I feel bad for you. Because it's not the pathway to eternal life. Jesus only is. Other ways that we add to the gospel of grace is oftentimes through the keeping or participating in the sacraments. The sacraments do not impart grace to us. Grace is given to us freely by God when we believe in Jesus Christ. We mustn't do anything to earn our salvation, but we must work out our salvation once we have it. Cultural Christianity will suggest that my moral goodness or my good deeds count for something when it relates to my salvation. When the reality is it doesn't count for anything. For your best in the eyes of God, your best is like a filthy rag. For the only way that God will see your righteousness is through his son who lives in you, Jesus Christ. Galatians 2, 8 and 9, Paul says this, Let God's curse fall on anyone, including us or even an angel from heaven, who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we've preached to you. I say again what we have said before. If anyone preaches any other good news than the one you welcomed, let that person be cursed. The salvation that God provides has never been about what we can do to gain eternal life. It's always been about what Jesus has done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. While the church in Jerusalem affirmed the gospel of grace and settled the matter once and for all, 
They also determined a pathway forward to preserve the unity of the body by living charitably towards one another. And this is the second thing we would take as a life lesson. We must lovingly preserve the unity of the body of Christ. And we do this when we live charitable towards one another. Why is the unity of the body of Christ such a critical thing to keep? Because it's through the body of Christ that the gospel goes into the world, either hindered or unhindered. If people see that we can't live together and get along as a church family, why would they ever want to be a part of that? They likely come from that family already. For our goal is to protect the unity of the church so that the gospel can go unhindered. Now, you may think that I'm not the best spokesperson to proclaim the gospel into the world. Okay. But I want you to know that when you're walking in the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit that's in you comes out of you, it's not only a witness to the gospel, but it's how people experience the gospel through you. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control are all things that people experience as a result of the changed life that the gospel brought to your life. Yes, we need to proclaim the gospel in word, but we also need to live it in deed. And so rather than thinking you need to have a bullhorn on the corner to tell people they need Jesus, remember, your witness to the gospel is the life you live. And when the fruit of the Spirit is lived out of you, people are going to experience the hands and feet of Jesus through you. There's three testimonies in this passage. Peter begins by giving a testimony of the vision that God gave him upon which there's an acceptance of the Gentiles into the family of God. You'll notice if you go back and read this that Paul and Barnabas is their testimony is about the impact that the gospel had and the miracles, signs, and wonders that were experienced. So as Peter proclaimed, God said, the Gentiles are a part of the family of God through faith in Jesus, Paul and Barnabas can say, let me give you a witness to what God is doing in the world through miracles, signs, and wonders, authenticating and validating the message of the good news that says the Gentiles can come in and their lives are being changed. But then there was James. James took the word of God and he pointed everybody to the word of God and said, you know what? There was a vision and an apostolic authority. There's the gift of the sign, miracle, and wonder. And now... James points to Amos in the Old Testament, and he says, and this is what the prophet said long ago, that God determined what would happen. The Gentiles would be brought into the family of God. They resolved the conflict. So I'm going to give you four simple, easy ways, by way of application, how we can resolve conflict in our lives just like they did. Four words I'm going to give you. The first one is clarity. Can write that down. The second word is transparency. The third is charity. And the fourth is biblical authority. I'm going to define these for you. Clarity. Define the issue. Clarity. Define the issue. The issue there was, is circumcision required for salvation? 
The second one is transparency. State your position. If you're going to resolve conflict, you must state your position. You must know it and then state it. The third one is charity. Respect each other's opinion. Respect each other's opinion. And then fourth, biblical authority. Rely on God's word to determine the best possible outcome. They did exactly this in this meeting. They brought the issue to the table and they defined it with clarity. Is circumcision required for salvation? With transparency, they sat around the table and gave everybody a voice. They respected everybody with dignity. And then they got clear about what the word of God actually says. While they turned to the word of God as their source of authority to point them forward in God's best. Now, how about those areas where they're gray? The word doesn't seem to address it so directly. How do we handle those situations? Well, Paul addresses this as it relates to meat. He also addressed it as it related to the Sabbath, but concerning meat, listen to his words. Romans 14, accept other believers who are weak in the faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. For instance, one person believes it's right to eat anything, but another believer with a sensitive conscience will eat only vegetables. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. Who are you to condemn someone else's servants? Their own master will judge whether they will stand or fall, and with the Lord's help, they will stand and receive his approval. Paul goes on to say, yes, each of us will give a personal account to God, so let's stop condemning each other. Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble or fall. The orientation of our lives and our love for others is towards others. So when you think about resolving conflict, remember these four things. The first one is clarity. Be clear on the issue. The second is transparency. State your position. The third is charity. Give each other respect. And the fourth is biblical authority. What does God's word say? To the matter. When we live our lives uncompromising to the gospel, and we live our lives resolving conflict so that the unity of the body of Christ will remain intact, both in the church and our personal lives as Christians, the gospel of Jesus Christ will go into this world unhindered. And that's exactly what God wants from us. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word this morning. There's a lot to take in. But thank you that, God, you've included us who are Gentiles into your family. That the gospel is the good news about what you've done, not what we've done. How, God, you have called the church to live in unity so that our testimony to the world would be powerful. How you've also given us a pathway 
to resolve our differences so that your name would be made known through us. We thank you for that. Help us to live in such a way that those who don't know you will come to know you through our lives. In Christ's name, amen.